Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the first mini episode of A Million Other Choices. I have a few cases that I'm interested in enough to want to research, but I don't have enough to make a full-length episode on them. So as I have time, I'll pop in some mini-episodes for you. This is the murder of Carrie Marshall. Carrie Marshall was born in Winnipeg on December 30th, 1970, but her family was residing at the time of her murder in Cranbrook, B.C. Her mom, Ferry Marshall, described Carrie to Matt Robinson of the Vancouver Sun as a warm, loving person with a four-and-a-half-year-old son. She was stalked, abducted, brutally murdered, and dumped on a mountaintop. Time has not healed her wounds of her daughter's murder, but she has only learned to live with it. Carrie had had her son as a teenager, becoming pregnant at the age of 16, but had chosen to keep her son, whom she named Brandon, and was raising him mostly on her own with with the help of her mom, Fairy, stepdad, Mark, her younger sister, with whom she had a very tight bond, and her grandmother. By the time Carrie had reached the age of 21, Brandon was now four, and she was with a man that she'd hoped to marry named Stan Polak. Stan had his own issues and was reported to have been involved in drug gangs and had been physically abusive towards Carrie. But she, like many young women with a kind and forgiving nature, wanted to help him and hoped that she could one day be the one thing that he needed in life to be fixed. So despite having a life with friends and family in Cranbrook, she planned on packing up her life and moving her little family to a place called Tata Creek, to help Stan get get and stay sober and hopefully leave the drug trade behind. Just a side note here, Stan Pollock himself died in 2005 when he was killed by members of the Greeks gang, so her legacy of kindness didn't resonate enough with Stan to stay out of trouble. Anyways, on the morning of December 3rd, 1992, her mom, Ferry, dropped Carrie, who was wearing a red and black sweater, off at the Cranbrook Mall, which housed the local bus depot where she was catching a bus to Creston, B.C., as a side stop on the way to Tata Creek. 
By December of 1992, Carrie had started the move to Creston and had returned to Cranbrook to pick up some additional belongings. There isn't any information in the source documents about where Stan and Brandon were during this period. From the sounds of things, Stan had already located himself in Tata Creek, perhaps in a residential treatment place or with family, and had been there, and Carrie was doing the legwork part of the move, organizing all the stuff, and Brandon wasn't with her at this time. So he was perhaps staying behind with his grandma until there was less chaos. Toddlers are hard to organize around when you are off your regular routine, and they always need snacks, so this is the most likely scenario. In the meantime, Carrie had been staying temporarily in Creston in what all the news reports call a shack, just outside of town in a fairly wooded and remote area. Now, I've seen pictures of the shack, and it's really just a small little bungalow house. People have some pretty high standards on housing in this country if they really consider it a shack. Later on the afternoon of December 3rd, Carrie had arrived from Cranbrook back at this shack slash house and her friend Roselle Huscroft came to see her. When she pulled into the lot, Roselle noticed that there were two sets of tire tracks in the snow pulling into the lot and then out again. And when she mentioned it to Carrie, she looked at the tracks and remarked rather cryptically, someone's been up here. Roselle left around five that evening. And the next morning on the 4th, her stepdad Mark arrived at the house at 9 a.m. as he had planned. He was going to pick her up and take her out to Tata Creek. And when he arrived, he pulled into the lot and noticed that the front door, which was visible from the long gravel driveway, was standing halfway open, figuring Carrie was just inside gathering her belongings and awaiting his arrival. He stepped into the house. He couldn't find Carrie anywhere, but her purse, her house keys, and her cigarettes were still in the kitchen. Carrie was reported missing right away, and there isn't any details about the search itself that was conducted as the case was back in 1992, and details that far back are kind of hard to come by. But I can definitely tell from the source documents that a formal search party was launched as Carrie didn't own a vehicle and relied on rides from family and friends to get in and out of the remote wooded area she was living in. During the period of the search for Carrie, RCMP honed in on a 33-year-old man named Duray Bentley Richards as being responsible for Carrie's disappearance, which they felt looked immediately like it had been the result of foul play. Duray had moved to Creston in August of 1992 for what he called a fresh start, but what RCMP believed was more of a way to distance himself from his criminal past in Alberta and start a new one in B.C., Very soon after he arrived in Creston, the RCMP in Creston already were familiar with DeRay. In fact, he was held each weekend at the detachment jail as an intermittent sentence for having threatened a woman. He did have a job. He was working at the lumber yard and quickly made some friends. Investigators discovered very early into their investigation that DeRay had known Carrie. About a month or two after his move to Creston, he had come by his friend Cindy's house to drop off his truck before his weekend jail sentence. Carrie was there at the time visiting Cindy, and Cindy wasted no time telling police that Duray had stared at Carrie intently the whole time he was there. The Monday after he was once again free for the week for work purposes, he returned in a drunken state to Cindy's house around midnight, and again Carrie was there. He asked if she wanted to go four-wheeling with him, and she'd said no, probably not just because she had a boyfriend, but also because he creeped her out and was drunk at the time. According to court testimony, Duray had responded to Carrie, 
What's the matter? Are you scared to go for a ride with me? Are you scared I'm going to rape you? Carrie had said, no, that's not it. And DeRay had responded, well, you should be. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. One of the investigating officers wrote to Duray's parole officer to get a list of his prior convictions. Turns out there were quite a few, and according to the officer, together his history of offenses, quote, show a definite history of extreme violence against women, end quote. In one of the charges, Duray had picked up a sex worker, took her to a hotel room, and started to strangle her. Duray was also looking like a pretty good suspect in three other outstanding murder investigations of sex workers in Calgary. Three days later, Carrie was found in a wooded area about a 10-minute drive from the cabin or shack that she had been staying in. She was found a few meters into a lane of bushes along the side of a logging road. Discarded along this road were a blue t-shirt, a pair of pants, a bra, and one pink sock. Carrie was laying splayed face up on the frozen ground covered in a light layer of fresh snow. Her body was frozen and her face was a bluish gray. She was naked except for the one pink sock. Two separate autopsies were done on Carrie. They both found that she had a number of bruises on her face that would have done enough damage to render her unconscious. Her cause of death was internal bleeding, and they suspected that the murder weapon had been consistent with a tire iron. She had no signs of defensive wounds. The second autopsy done by Dr. Rex Ferris found that she had been sexually assaulted and was likely unconscious, thankfully, when the tire iron was used on her. RCMP seized Duray's 1976 Ford Torino, which had studded Uniroyal tires. The tracks of his tires matched the tire tracks that Roselle had seen at the cabin. The tires had evidence of having hit a a red western cedar telephone pole on Carey's property. Specks of the pole were found under the bumper of his car. There was also an empty Luby Lube motor oil container with a missing cap near where Carrie's body was found, and this particular brand of oil wasn't very popular at the time or available in BC, and this particular brand of oil was found to be in the engine of Duray's Torino. The man that had sold the car in November of 1992 to Duray told police that there was a tire iron in the trunk. The tire iron was never found. In addition, police found two spots of blood in his car. DNA testing at that time, which admittedly was rudimentary, determined the blood belonged to the same genotypes as Carrie's as was considered a 1 in 12 match for accuracy. In his interview with the police, Duray said, quote, 
I didn't kill that girl, but I agree it doesn't look good for me. The tire tracks, my car. I knew her, but Christ, I haven't seen her or had dealing with her since beginning October. End quote. Then, because he wasn't already looking guilty, so why not make it worse? While in police custody, he used his phone call to call a friend and ask him to make sure that the jacket and shoes that he had been wearing on December 4th didn't get to the police. He was released later that same night and was rearrested a day or two later. He was wearing that said jacket and when examined, red and black fibers were found that were consistent with the red and black sweater that Carrie had been wearing when last seen by her mum. What's interesting about the sweater is that a woman named Maggie had dropped it off at the police station a couple of weeks after Carrie's murder. She told police that Duray had given her the sweater on the same day that Carrie had disappeared. So based on circumstantial evidence against him, and after a full 74 days of trial and 16 hours of deliberation, Richards was convicted by a jury on May 27, 1994, and was sentenced that day to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. Ferry Marshall attended every day of DeRay's trial, which took place in Cranbrook. She said he was seated facing the judge, and he never looked at her during the trial. DeRay maintained his innocence, and in 1997, he appealed to the B.C. Court of Appeal, which was denied. And then in 2003, he appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. Despite a rather compelling case against him, a Vancouver lawyer named Brock Martland at the University of BC's Innocence Project took a closer look at the conviction and an appeal was filed with the federal justice minister. They claimed, quote, a series of threads stitched together will give the appearance of a strong and resilient fabric, but on closer inspection, with only a little tugging on the fabric, the threads unravel. Almost every thread, evaluated individually, is suspect and weak. What is left is far from a reliable and sturdy garment, and it cannot be trusted. Ferry thought that it didn't make a lot of sense to make these appeals since he had already exhausted his appeals and lost them all, and when asked if she thought Duray had been the one that had killed her daughter, she said, of course he did. On a side note, and perhaps of interest to some of you, Duray Richard has a sister that has remained supportive of him over the years and understands the pain DeRay endured having shared the same alcoholic and abusive father. That sister is former Calgary resident Jan Arden. Jan Arden is a well-known Canadian singer-songwriter turned comedic actress. Her single, Hanging by a Thread, is dedicated to her brother. She told a CBC talk show in 2011 that, We watched him slowly die in there over the last 20 years. I've gotten to know him. I'm also watching a man that's three years older than me that's declining. Type 1 diabetes, respiratory problems, sores that won't heal. His teeth are rotting out of his head. He can hardly see and he's not looked after very well. And this is Canada. It's a curse and a blessing that I'm his sister. You know, some people say it would, it would really help him, but it doesn't always help him. Sometimes it's to his detriment. They think I send him money all the time. Well, newsflash, anyone incarcerated in this country is only allowed so much money. If I had $10 million, I couldn't send it to him. He's allowed 500 bucks a year, and that's what he can have. He has, I think, paid his debt to society. By 2018, a decision hadn't been made on his appeal in, by the Innocence Project, but in 2019, DeRay was granted day parole to visit his mother who was suffering with Alzheimer's. 
the parole board felt he had made progress in his 25 years behind bars, stating, quote, You have completed programming aimed at addressing your issues, risk factors, with noted gains and demonstration of skills. You have a positive work ethic and employable skills. You have worked on creating healthy relationships and have support of your family. This is considered the next step in a gradual reintegration. For his part, DeRay admitted that at one time he was a very angry person and females were seen as vulnerable and able to be overpowered. Sex trade workers were more vulnerable as they may not be believed or missed. His day parole was extended for a further term in 2020. Interestingly, I couldn't find anywhere that any media peeps had ever asked her family how they felt about his parole decision. And that was the murder of Carrie Marshall. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>